0: Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians, one of whom has been reviewing new cars for almost 30 years. That's me, Steve Schutz. And the other of whom is a trauma surgeon. That's my co-host, Devon Moran. Discuss car topics of the day from a perspective you won't find anywhere else. Welcome to episode four of Cars on Call. I am Steve Schutz, and I'm here along with my co-host, Stefan Moran, and we're going to talk cars again. As always, we've got a couple topics we're going to get to, but Stefan, I got a couple cars that I spotted. I don't want to do like, you know, car spotting thing. I don't want to like have car spotting as like the way we start this thing. But I, I saw a couple last week, Stefan, and I just was really... I don't know if excited is the right word but i was really intrigued by these two cars and i want to run them by you and the first one driving down the interstate you know 75 miles an hour or something like that a 1987 or 88 third generation honda Accord sedan that was the third generation i know you own the second generation this is the third generation it was the only accord generation with uh, pop-up headlights and it occurred to me that and i want to get your opinion since you were an accord owner i know you had an 85 which was gen 2 but it occurred to me that the fact that it was on the road is it was remarkable for being unremarkable and what i mean by that is that when you see a car like that which is an 85 accord or i'm sorry 88 accord driving down the road it's at someone's daily driver you don't even notice it you see you know 92 camry or an 88 accord and they're just doing their thing and if you think about it, Stefan, these cars are 34 years old. And the reason I mentioned it is that in 1988, you take 1988 and subtract 34 years, you have 1954. And in 1988, you would not see any 1954 cars as daily drivers. You wouldn't see 1964 cars as, as drivers. And it's because these cars are built so much better now that these 1988 and 1992 and whatever cars are still on the road. So what do you, what do you think about that?
1: Ellen had a, um, pretty sure it was an '88 LX four door white with the burgundy interior, automatic, Accord. And uh, yeah, I had the two door hatchback that I bought my senior year of college in uh, '79. And then later on, I had an Acura. And yeah, they were, you know, back then when you bought a Honda or the Camry, less so the Maxima. The Maxima was also the very hot. There, the the four door sedans were hot. Maxima, Accord, those were the three hot sedans. But the Honda and the Toyota clearly were at a separate level of reliability. The Cord was cooler than the Camry. The Camry was still not, it was kind of like, eh, it's just a four door sedan that, you know. Uh,
0: it was kind of nerdy.
1: It was nerdy, yeah. But the Cord was cool. It was a cool car and it was a Fabian. I think it looked a lot better. Now, the really cool car was the Maxima, though. And that's when people, you know, got Maximas and you painted the rims back then. So you had a white Maxima with white rims. I don't know if you remember that. Friend of mine I, had one of those.
0: What I remember about that is, the, is on the back of the the Maxima, it said 4DSC, which stood for four-door sports car.
1: And uh, my father-in-law had a Maxima, and it was great. But overall, the fit and finish reliability did not match the Honda. The Honda clearly was a fabulous car. Yeah, we loved it. And you're right. I mean, I don't even remember seeing 55 and 56 Chevys as a young kid. I mean, yeah, you go to a car show. And people love those cars, but I mean, first of all, from a safety so not standpoint, as, not as
0: daily drivers,
1: not as daily drivers, they fell apart and they were from a safety standpoint, they were complete nightmares because that's when safety really progressed later on with seat belts and airbags. And I mean, you just wouldn't want to be driving one of those cars, but you're right. Speaking um, of safety,
0: by the way, Stefan, that Accord uh, was driving next to a Ford Fusion, the first generation Ford Fusion, and the Ford was much bigger. And it occurred to me. That, that accord is around the same size as a current Civic,
1: yes, yeah, I mean we' all seen these cars get bigger And you know Ellen complained about that she's she's short, and when we bought her her latest car, she's like, "Why don't they make cars like my original Honda? I mean she says that's the first car that she actually sat and fit in, and we'll talk about that later in the show about crash testing and crash dummies and how size matters in terms of the safety features and the crash awareness of the car and your chance of getting injured or dying, how you well you fit the car and yeah, the cars—they've all gotten bigger and bigger, and which is part and related to being safer. They need to be bigger, and you're out there battling the you know urban assault vehicles, that, you know all the right. SUVs and all those that weigh twice and three times you do, and, and Ford doesn't even make a sedan anymore. So,
0: right, yeah, funny a funny coincidence is that a uh, 1988 Accord, the Accord is a little bit like its owner. You take someone uh, class in 1988. They're bigger than they were <laughs> back in 1988 <laughs> yeah. so it's the same thing the owners a- the owners are mirroring the cars yes hey this the second car stefan and i think this is going to make you chuckle it's something that you, you you just never see and i saw this and you wouldn't even see this, this is 1994 and you wouldn't even see it then it's a 1994 subaru svx oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's it's kind of a goofy car and and I remember uh at the time thinking what are they doing and and the you know car and driver road and track did not like it and obviously Subaru was trying to re- expand their brand and they wanted to get out of, of what they were and they wanted to be kind of cool. My recollection or my sense of of Subaru back in the 70s and 80s was boxy, kind of nerdy, utilitarian, almost agricultural. I mean, they were yeah. so just completely all about use and thrift, and just getting you where you where you need to go for as little money as possible. And there was nothing at all cool about them. They had these uh, four cylinder boxer engines that were just they sounded like a tractor, and and these cars just were were not desirable in any way. And Subaru, of course, wanted to break out of that. And they they first had the XT, which was an angular kind of eighties. Sports car, but it had just the four cylinder, no more power than a regular Subaru, and that didn't that did okay, but not great. And I think they said, "All right, we're going for it." So they had a a boxer um, six cylinder, a little bit like the the 911. That's literally the only thing the SVX had in, in common with the 911. And it was kind of round. The XT was angular, like the 80s. The the, the SVX was round, like the jelly bean 90s. But when you think back to the SVX, you know, at the time, what was what, what do you think about it?
1: Well, you know, back then we didn't text, but WTH, you know, what the hell? I mean, this thing came out and I think it was about what, 93 or so. And I was subscribed to road and track and read the thing religiously. And then I remember there being this article in the magazine that just lauded this car. It said it was the greatest thing ever. And all these features and had this crazy, you need to look it up listeners. It had a window in a window, which was the most bizarre thing kind of like a you know pilot squeezing out the little one on the left side so he could reach out. I mean, it wasn't even a real window, but I read all about, I'm like, this car is not great. It's got all these weird features. Then I saw across the top in small print, special advertising section. And that was the very first time that I can recall that a brochure by a manufacturer as an advertising piece being put into a periodical magazine. And I'm like, Well, of course this is a special advertising session because this this car is just ridiculous. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's ugly, stupid, crazy features. That's what I remember about the SVX. Then I saw one that road. I'm like, just no, no, it doesn't work.
0: Yeah, that's what customers said. Nobody really bought it. It Nobody bought it. It was out
1: one year. One and done.
0: I think it was more than one year, but it was I think it was a couple of years. But whatever, it doesn't matter. It was also expensive. And people said, you know, we we can get a uh, a legit sports car you know you're talking about you, you could get a miata back then uh you could get yeah. uh, obviously a bmw three series or or you know there's a number of ford mustang there's a number of things you could do beside that you know it was also the same time as lexus i think there was the lexus coupe had come out by that time the S sc was more money but it was much nicer and the idea of this this kind of uh, sports car wannabe interestingly around the same time subaru again in an effort to be more legit and more mainstream uh decided to go with all-wheel drive in all their cars and that actually was a good idea yeah so that that differentiated themselves they were kind of the you know audi was the high-end and and toyota or subaru was sorry was the was the low-end all-wheel drive and that was something that you know customers wanted that but this thing with the weird window by the way remember the window was a window in a window right yeah yeah
1: Hey, speaking of two speaking of the car spotting, I saw two cars that are worth mentioning. I saw uh, the classic Alabama Fox bodied Safari Mustang. Oh, so this is,
0: <laughs> that is so red next to fun.
1: It was, you know, jacked up four wheel drive, uh, Mustang coupe Fox body. And then today I was driving to work and I'm like, I got And I said, I got to have something for car spotting. And I'm driving and I'm listening to a podcast and I'm in the truck. And I hear a rumble, just a but a very unusual bass rumble exhaust note that I have not heard in a long time. And I'm looking my I look in my rearview mirror, don't see anything. I look in the left-hand mirror, and I'm getting passed by a sedan, a small mid-sized sedan from the early first decade of 2008. And I'm like, what the hell is that? And it sounds amazing. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, a Pontiac G8. Um, And it was the GT, which has got the uh, six liter 360 horsepower, the Holden. So for listeners, the Pontiac actually brought over some hot rods from Australia. Mm -hmm. Australians always had hot rods down there. And it was a one year and done. Bob Lutz project brought it over. and But it sounded... the
0: GTO. The GTO was earlier... Yeah, GTO the GTO was, was a Holden two door that they they named GTO. You know, sacrilege. Yeah,
1: it was. But the G, it sounded really nice. You know, I was expecting. Where's the tin can muffler on the usual? When you see a, you know, a JDM Japanese domestic manufacturer sedan that's lowered and slammed, you know, you're some little tin can four cylinder noise comes back. But this had this fabulous rumble. So that was a cool car. I hadn't seen that in forever.
0: Yeah, they didn't sell many of them, but it was a great car. I think if you have one, hold on to it. It's it's always going to be desirable. A wonderful V8. A lot of those came with manual transmissions too. All right. So our main topic today, Stefan, as you know, is car dealers. But before we do that, one thing occurred to me is that we lived through a, a golden era of bumper stickers. And it sounds stupid to say that because now the average number of bumper stickers on a car in 2022 is zero. And you've got 99.9 percent of cars with no bumper stickers, and then you have 0.1 percent of cars that are covered with bumper stickers. Is your know, Prius or or something goofy and it's covered with with bumper stickers? It's just kind of a joke. But back in the 70s and 80s, people had bumper stickers to send a message, and they were very common. It was, uh, I would say. Uh, at least 50%, maybe 60% of cars had a bumper sticker, and it wasn't a thousand, it wasn't zero, it'd be like two or three bumper stickers. And I, and I it was just like thought part it was, of the
1: highway bingo thing, you know, when you're driving and you didn't have kids didn't have car phones in the back seat and game boys and this. You were looking for stuff to do, and spotting car tags was something that we did routinely. People would put
0: these bumper stickers on to send a message, and a lot of them were whimsical. A lot I would never
1: have done that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's start with you, Stefan. Your your 1985 Honda Accord. What was your What was your bumper sticker? I remember. Yeah, so the semi Accord,
1: and in college, uh, I had a bumper sticker on the back of my car, and it said, "You're ugly, and your mother dresses you funny."
0: <laughs> yeah, I thought it was it was really funny, and it it's funny. I was actually thinking about your car and then the bumper sticker, because of course I remember the bumper sticker and. And it just reminded me of a lot of those bumper stickers, and they are gone, and that era is gone. And I'm I'm sorry that it's so forgotten, and I want to do my part to make people remember it. Uh, I, I think I'm going to surprise you with my all-time favorite. It's a little off color, but it's just one of those weird, funny bumper stickers. But there's a guess. lot of funny ones.
1: Larry Flint for president.
0: <laughs> that was a bumper sticker. Well, um, I got it right. Yeah, that was not my favorite. <laughs> No, no, you're never going to guess. It, so Okay. But, but, you know, there were some goofy ones like, and I just remembered these off the top of my head. I did not Google this, but one was, God only created so many perfect heads. The rest he covered with hair. Of course, this is the all-time classic, you know, this one, if you don't like my driving, get off the sidewalk. Yeah. Uh, caution, I- this car makes many stops at your mom's house. <laughs> Uh, on a, on a back of a van, like a seven, this would have been like a seventies van where they had no windows, you know, a Ford Econoline or something like that. Don't laugh. Your daughter might be in the back of this van. Uh, the classic, of course, if this van's a rocket, don't come and knock. uh, you, can you think of any Stefanos or just a few I thought of?
1: One of my favorites was my kid beat up your honor student. I <laughs> just, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I love that. Um, But yeah, the bumper stickers were something else. And now I think people just have vanity plates. But um, before you get to yours, so what today, what vehicle do you think is most likely to be covered in bumper stickers? I'd say Prius.
0: It's usually a a Prius. Prius,
1: I was going to say a Beetle, thinking a Beetle. Uh, How about what brand maybe? Subaru. Subaru. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Subaru is, oh my gosh, that's a classic one. Let me, a couple more. Uh, This one is near and dear to both of our hearts, Stefan. Oh yeah. Uh honk if you pass P-Camp. Honk was, honk,
1: baby. <laughs> honk if yeah. you pass
0: PCAMP. Both of us pass P-Camp. And it was that was a very common bumper sticker. It's kind of weird to think that now. I'll just go with a couple more, then I'll give you my favorite. We'll move on because I don't want to spend too much time on this. But you know, uh driver carries no cash. He's married. <laughs> my other car is a Mercedes. That was a classic. Don't right, laugh, no, it's paid for. Right. And there actually were some serious ones. And if you remember, AA was like very mainstream. It became mainstream in the mid 80s and Alcoholics Anonymous. And they had their own bumper stickers. Easy does it was one. Live and let live. So they had their own, you know, easy does it was the most common one. But you'd see that and it was a signal to other drivers that, hey, I'm an AA. And if you didn't know what, if you if you didn't know about it, You would just think, oh, it's it's a nice little expression, but it in fact was a signal to other drivers, hey, I'm in the program, which I kind of I thought was kind of was kind of cool.
1: I have one more fair. My mind was changed by bumper sticker said, "No one ever."
0: (laughs) Oh, that's good. Yeah, fly navy, and I'd rather be flying. Those are ones I put down as kind of you know humble brag uh, bumper stickers. Uh, The funniest one that's a humble brag was my other car is a Porsche, and it was. On a Porsche, <laughs> which I thought was very funny. Um, yeah, right, it is, so that, is, that is funny. I know we got to move on, but I will tell you my favorite one, which I probably saw in the 90s. And I just saw that I'm like, wow, I didn't think of that.
1: Baby one. on board?
0: No, that's <laughs> no, this one I didn't think of. I never would have thought of this in a million years, but it's pretty funny. I don't drive in your toilet, don't pee on my car. Crazy, but it's yeah. funny. All right. So that's it for bumper stickers. And I do want to, you know, just say to to younger listeners out there that that it was a fun era. Most of them were funny. And a little wink and, and a nod and and a little bit of a smile here and there. And I thought it was nice. And you just don't see that anymore. Unfortunately, the the era of of, uh, of bumper stickers is over and it probably will never come back. And it's not the same to have a hundred on a Subaru.
1: Yeah, two people are two people are too busy texting and driving to read bumper stickers. You know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> why, why do you need a bumper
1: sticker? Why a bumper sticker when you can when you can look at your phone?
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's you know Stefan, It's so it's it's gotten so crazy that it seems like everybody just drives down the road and they have their phone right in front of and they're looking at it and they and it's like why has that become so mainstream? But it is. It, it's scary and I don't like it.
1: I don't like it. We'll definitely discuss. Um distracted driving as part of the automotive safety, you know, talk that talking that we'll do speaking. Uh, we'll get to that.
0: Okay, on to our next topic today, which is uh I would say contentious, a little bit controversial. And it is, do we need new car dealers anymore? And I think uh, at the end of our conversation, Stefan, we will have agreed. Maybe not completely, but mostly. And uh, I know you've got a story you told me, and it's a really good story. And I, I think it's not wholly representative of people's experiences, but too many people have had a story like that. So anyway, let me just ask you, Stefan, right now. I mean, do we need new car dealers or not?
1: I think that they need to wake up and change. I think that on the current path that they're headed, they're not keeping up with society and how we. Have transactions when we buy things. And I think, yeah, we all have stories about a car dealer. My dad had stories. I went to a car dealer with my dad, saw, witnessed what happened at the car dealer. And, you know, frankly, you being a GI guy, I think I'd rather have a colonoscopy than go to the car dealer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'd say, <laughs> I'd say something. I'd say ra- I'd rather go to the dentist than the car dealer. But then again, my wife's a retired dentist. So I shouldn't probably say that. Just but I for guess, the I record, Because
0: colonoscopy that. is better because you're sedated.
1: Exactly. So I think overall, yes, there are good things that happens at dealers, but I think they have, because they are a legally protected business, they have failed to evolve. And there are too many bad stories because they're legally protected. And without those protections, they can't move in a rapidly changing business environment. Uh, Yeah. So my story, uh, this is when I bought my Bullet Mustang just uh, a little over two years ago so, like everybody, you know, I get on the internet and I searched all through um, the ads trying to find a car online. And I finally found the bullet I wanted. It, had, it, was just, it was basically six months old, had very low miles. And it was on the dealer website plus two other websites. And I found it on one of the websites where they said no doc fees, which document fees. So they're called doc fees. And so basically it was. What I call the out the door price (OTD), you know, which is what you like. That's I know I'm going to have to pay tax on it. I know I got to pay a title fee on it. But a lot of dealers like to charge you anywhere from 500 to thousand dollars to do paperwork on the car. I mean, it, I mean, clearly it's just it's a ridiculous fee. But I found one, so I called up the dealer, spoke with the internet person, and said, "Send me a bill. You know, a bill we can work on." with the -the out-the-door price. And she sends it back to me and it's got the $1,000 doc fee. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, no way. I said. She said, well, that's what it says on the website. I said, well, which website are you looking at? I said, you've got your car advertised on multiple websites. So I had to send her a picture from my phone before she would believe me that they had advertised the doc fee. Come on. I mean, why would I lie about that? So this is occurring on a Friday. starts on a thursday friday live out in the country i can't go to my banks a long ways away i can't get a certified check i'm like all right let me wire you the money nope can't take a wire did you can't take wire money for a car purchase he said no we can't do that i'm like okay and then i said how about if i bring a check and then you call my bank can't take personal checks it's got to be a certified check and i said all right we'll put the whole car on my credit card I've got the limit. I'll just buy the whole car on a credit card. Well, I mean, that would be to my advantage in points, but they don't want to do that because they lose, you know, anywhere from three to 5%. She said, Well, I said, put the max on the credit card then. So she said, All right. Then I said, Well, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just finance it when I get there. Cause a friend of mine's dropping me off on his way up to Ohio. He dropped me off at the dealer. This is up in Nashville and dropped me off. And I wasn't going to have a car. And there was no, my bank wasn't close by. So I couldn't go to the bank, get a certified check. So I show up at the dealer when they open at nine o'clock. I didn't get out of there until noon that day because first of all, the finance guy was busy taking in cars that came out on Saturday. And then he gave me the bill of sale and it had $500 on there for, I think it's the Kahu GPS tracking. So we put that on all our cars. All of our cars come with Kahoo. You'll get home and you'll register your car and you'll have GPS tracking for anti-theft. I'm like, I live in the country. This thing is going to be in the garage. I'm not worried about it. Take it off. All right, we'll try to take it off. Then he comes back an hour and a half later. We can't take it off. You got you to take the car with it. I'm like, fine. You've kept me here all morning. We've already done the finance. I know I don't want the warranty. No, I don't want the tire package. No, I don't want the seat leather coating. No, I don't. The car's got ceramic coating. Don't put anything else on it. Do the whole rigmarole. I said, I want what the car is advertised at. No dock fees. And I said, I'm tired of waiting here. Just I'll pay the 500 bucks to get out of here on the Kahoo. With the Kahu GPS. So I get home and had a wonderful drive. I just love that car. And I get home and I go to register with Kahu. And guess what? What do you think? Of course. The okay. car doesn't have
0: it. <laughs> yeah, Okay.
1: So they sold me something that wasn't on the vehicle. So I'm furious. I call them back. I leave voicemails and I email. I'll get back to you. No, you got to call the accounting department. Oh, no, we can't refund you because the car's in Lien. Oh, we overcharge you on state tax, but we can't refund that till the car comes out of lien. I'm like, I paid the car off. Okay. The car's paid off. I got home. I literally paid it off five days later. So I don't have a lien. Well, we haven't received the paperwork back. Well, when we get when we get the paperwork, we'll send you your money back. Time goes on, another week, another two weeks. He doesn't answer my call. So I leave a nasty review on social media. Basically, his car dealer tried to throw in doc fees that they said weren't on it put a, something on the car that wasn't on it. And then they hassled me to get it. And when the manager read the review, this is a very large fancy dealership in Nashville. He called me wanting me to change my review. I said, absolutely not. I said, I better get a check tomorrow. Or I'm going to call the NADA. I said, what you guys did was just flat out wrong. So and he's like, change your post, please, on on social media. And I, I, I'm saying to myself, oh, hell no. You know, just, there's no way. Right. And so, but I think, you know, when what this takes moves us into is what I call the Tesla, I'm sure other people call this, but it's a Teslafication, the Amazonization, but, you know, because of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, we have changed the way that we shop. I mean, you know, you can't, I don't buy anything anymore without looking at reviews. What's the best price? You know, you look at Yelp for restaurants. So we research everything that we do. And now the the consumer has a tremendous amount of knowledge. You know, you used to have to go to the library to get the little NADA book to find out what your car is worth at a trade-in, you know, because the dealer has held that secret for years. And I think because this is such a protected industry with their franchises and that they have not evolved. Now, there are some dealers which truly do advertise out-the-door prices. And we bought my wife's car from a local dealer. She bought a, a Hyundai. And on their website, they tell you what the car price is plus tax title and fees no doc fees that's it we walked in there and of course you go to the finance guy and I'm like nope don't want that don't want that and he's like fine he said by the way would you mind would you like to buy two cars you know i said no one's good enough so i did have had a good experience but the dealers that have transitioned to understand the consumer who's now well versed in prices well versed in what it should cost knows about these things if they don't keep up with that i think that they're doomed. And this this is a huge dealer in Nashville. And I was just a terrible experience. And, you know, Elon Musk, you can buy your car with the phone. You know exactly what it's going to cost. Shows up at your house a week to two weeks later. like you said, you know, and you don't like the car. What does he do?
0: Yeah, he takes it back. Yeah, I think I may have told the story before, uh, maybe not actually, but a friend of mine bought a Tesla model three and he bought it on his phone and it showed up. I think three weeks later and it showed up and, you know, the classic story is you buy your car and it loses 20% as as soon as you drive it off the lot. Well, that wasn't the case for his Tesla because he didn't like it. He actually thought the performance was less than he was going to get. So he, he wanted to upgrade to the performance. So he went back on his phone went to the site and said, yeah, I, I want to send this back. I want to get the performance version. And they said, great. And his car held full value. And then they, they actually, you know, showed up uh, I don't know, like a week later with the new performance version on a flatbed. And then they took his car and they put it on the flatbed and they they left him with a performance version, which he still has. He's very happy with it. So it's a better way to go. I like the way you said Amazonization, Stefan, because I think that's the key. You know, people feel comfortable buying things online as long as they have the assurance that it's not going to lose value. And it's a it's a very comfortable thing to buy online when you have that kind of that assurance. So I think that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, oh, by the way, our kids who are you know 20 to 30 years old, they would never put up with this kind of thing because they're used to buying everything online. They're used to being, being the way it's promised, and they're used to being able to send it back. And being able to send it back is a critical thing. It should be mentioned, by the way, that it's not legal to sell a new car in the United States unless you go through a franchise dealer Uh, My sense is that uh, Tesla is able, I'm not sure exactly how Tesla is able to do it. I think it's because uh, states are just kind of letting it go and not enforcing the laws. But uh, there are franchise laws in this country, state by state, that say you need a a franchise dealer, which is independent from the manufacturer to, to, to sell a car. I read automotive news regularly, and they are kind of uh, they reflect the vi- the the voice or the perspective, any way, of the dealer. And I know what the dealers would say. They'd say, number one, uh, a lot of tax revenues that states get come from us. We employ thousands of employees. These are local employees, and and they pay taxes and they they energize the economy. We're small business people, and we we help our local communities. We we give to local charities. I think ultimately, Stefan, the most compelling argument in favor of a local franchise dealer has to do with profit. And that is, if you have, let's say, a company-owned store, and a good example is the Apple store. So let's say you know your Chevy dealer is now owned by Chevy. Well, if you look at the Apple store, what happens when you buy an iPhone at the Apple store? You know, they pay their employees and that sort of thing, but every single dollar of profit, 100% of the profit it's made by the apple store it goes back to cupertino presumably to buy jet fuel as they go on one more vacation the executives <laughs> at apple so the local dealers would say listen we we do make money but we spend it at local restaurants local businesses we support uh, you know your daughter's soccer team we sponsor that you're not going to see an apple store sponsoring a soccer team or a little league team and that's what they're saying they're saying yeah you want to have a Chevy store it's not going to buy Girl Scout cookies, and it's not going to sponsor local charities. So, that is a pretty compelling argument. Oh, by the way, Stefan, I'd say this: as dealership consolidation happens, and right now there's maybe fifteen thousand car dealers, but it used to be a lot more. As consolidation happens, and you have these groups that you know, Auto Nation and Sonic and, and Group One, as they gobble up these mom and pop shops, that argument kind of goes away too. I mean, Auto is based in Florida. Uh, I bet you they're they're not sponsoring. There's I don't think there's an auto auto nation youth soccer team.
1: No, and I just think you know that if you look how Carvana and Vroom have taken off with the sale of used cars, if local dealers don't wake up and see that how impressive their growth has been, and what that's telling you is they offer the buying experience that consumers have become used to, consumers expect, and you know, we basically in life, we all just want to be treated fairly. And there's just, we all have too many stories. There's always, yeah, there, there's some great dealers out there, but there's too many that still hold on to the past. And I think it's because of, of their legal protection. So, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I think we're in agreement on this. Um, I do have my, my misgivings about having company on stores, which I just described, but, but ultimately there's too many stories uh, like you're describing, and it all comes down to a lack of transparency. I mean, honestly, you know, this is a very expensive thing. When you buy a house, you know what the price is going to be. And there can be some haggling, but you know what the price is going to be. There's much less uh, transparency with car sales than it should be that. I'll just say very quickly, a friend of mine bought a a two-year-old Porsche Cayman, and uh, they said, hey, we can put a ceramic coating on and they they were not able to put the ceramic coating on for a few days. So he took the car home and he found that it actually had ceramic coating already. <laughs> they were trying to sell them ceramic coating. So, you know, we'll, we'll move on here. But I have to say, Stefan, bad experiences like my friend and what you had and and what a lot of people experience, that may be the minority of transactions. In fact, I'm sure it is, but it doesn't matter. It should never happen. And, and it's discouraging and it does. So uh, I guess we're going to agree. Uh, we think dealers should, should go away. I don't think we need them anymore. So, okay, let's, uh, let's move on to our, our next topic. What do you have for the, the safety thing today?
1: We're going to talk about crash testing, kind of give you an overview of how cars are tested and uh, to make sure that we're safe as passengers when unfortunate events occur. And some of the research I did the main thing is, you know, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has the what are called the FMVSs, the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards. So anytime a car is designed and built by a manufacturer, there are minimum requirements that it must have in terms of safety features, everything from headlights to brake lights to windshield wipers, as well as crash tests. The cars get crashed with dummies and crash dummies inside and they have to pass the the minimum test. So, of course, you don't want the car that gets the minimum score, you know, if, if you've got your loved ones in it. And then the uh, NHTSA also has what's called the NCAP program, the new car assessment program. And this is slightly different test. And this is where you can go online and see um, what kind of rating they get. And then the second testing that occurs in America is by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, it's an independent organization. They do their own specific test. And what's interesting about IIHS that I, I found fascinating and is more than dear to my heart, which you'll see when I present some um, studies that I did is that they wanted their testing to be more like what happened in the real world. So like versus NHTSA, they raised the bumper on the, the vehicle that does a side impact to be more like SUVs in the real world. These are deformable barriers instead of a fixed barrier, but more, more like what happens in the real world. But you know, the open secret is cars are engineered to basically pass the test. It has modified some of their tests a little bit over the years. But the thing that you need to understand about these crash tests done is they're done with the crash dummy, the hybrid three crash dummy. So, who is riding in this car when it gets tested to see if it passes? Well, it's the 50th percentile male. So, the 50th percentile male dummy is five foot nine inches, 171 pounds. That is what used to be the 50th percentile in America. But, you know, with I don't know. We have it's Alabama. There's been biscuit.
0: evolution and that's the five.
1: that <laughs> Yeah. And we call it Alabama biscuit toxicity down here. You know, the, the, we have the, the American population has changed. You say world. 171 or 271? 171 pounds. <laughs> yeah. So the Alabama 50th percentile male would be. Um, 271. Yeah. And then the 50th percentile side impact dummy weighs 160 pounds. And then they have the fifth percentile female who's 4'11", 108 pounds. But the thing I understand about the female dummies is they are downsized male dummies. So they're not biologically modified with pelvis size, bone density, and all that in terms of the crash, crash dummies. So this got me thinking was back in Alabama back in 2000, and we were part of the Mercedes Benz crash engineering research engineering network is you're no crash dummy that was the first thing that popped in my head, all these crash tests. I'm not a crash dummy. I'm, 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 you know, right now I'm actually the closest I've ever been in my life to the 50th percentile male. Um, I still weigh less than he does, but um, that's the closest I've ever been. But then I look at my wife who's five feet tall. I won't disclose her weight, but she weighs, you know, she weighed less than a hundred pounds at the time, but her in a vehicle versus myself in a vehicle, two different fits in a vehicle. And I, Yeah, she hates driving my truck because she just doesn't fit it. So this got me thinking a long time ago. You know, after forty years of designing cars around the fifty percentile male, you're out of luck if you don't fit that car like the male. And when did this? When when did this really go wrong? You remember about nineteen ninety six to two thousand? What made the big news? Remember kids and women dying because of airbags. So from nineteen ninety six to two thousand. 179 people were killed by airbags. Now, the thing to understand about airbags is when the airbag first came out, the safety design and the regulation at the time was the airbag had to be designed to protect a 50 percentile male who was unrestrained. That absolutely irritated me. Why would you add a safety feature to a vehicle that's designed to protect somebody who refuses to wear their seatbelt? That is counterintuitive to safety design yeah, so they're trying
0: augment that should it should reward and augment someone who's reward and the right augment.
1: Thing. so instead it killed a bunch of people that didn't need to die they broke their necks basically is what happened because the force of the airbag was so high so this was going on and when i got the uab in 2000 and 2001 this led me thinking why is this happening and then so i raised the question scientifically of how can we look to see if truly in the real world, if you don't match the cookie coal, the, the if you don't match the round hole, the 50th percentile male, does something different happen to you? So that was kind of the intellectual spark that led to my studies, which have continued to evolve throughout the years. Not my studies, but the, the research has carried on. And so I look back at what I did is I basically, we went to a database and I divided people into different height, weight, and groups. And then you matched And then compared what happened to the different height, weight group people versus the hybrid crash three. And lo and behold, your chance of dying and your chance of getting injured were much higher in some cases, 2.3 times higher than the hybrid three crash mail. So that became part of my talk. When you buy a car, it's like buying a suit for the driver. You need the driver needs to make sure that they fit that car. And, uh, you know, case in point, my wife, when she buys a car, it takes her a long time to find one that she feels comfortable in the seating position. So our research at Alabama at the time clearly showed this in the literature. And we went on to look at does age make a difference and some great research. Now we know that, you know, female drivers and right front seat passengers, 17% more likely to be killed in a motor vehicle collision than a male of the same age. So now the data is clearly showing this. And then a recent study in 2019 by Jason Foreman at University of Virginia. And of course, this is not off the top of my head. I've looked this up because I want to tell you the, the real data. But he said any, his study showed that any seatbelt-wearing female occupant has a 73% greater odds of being seriously injured in a frontal collision than a male. I mean, think about that. 73%. Seventy three. unbelievable. Per- it's unbelievable.
0: All right, this, is, this is a question that you may not know the answer to, but it's occurred to me over the years that people sit in a different location. Some people like to sit really close to the steering wheel, or if they're a passenger really close to the dashboard, some people like to sit far away. There's a lot of variation in where people sit. That must make
1: a difference. It is, and, and some people like to put their feet up on the desk, <laughs> as we discussed <laughs> well, yeah, previously. We, <laughs> we don't want to go through that again. It does not end well, but exactly so. You know, um, what's the best place to sit? What's the, what's the ideal? So, you know, ideally, if if you're if you are the driver of the vehicle, you need to be positioned in the vehicle so you have maximum control of the vehicle. And you know, when we went to driving school together, they taught us the driving position. Basically, your leg should be slightly bent, and then when your leg is straight with your foot behind the foot the brake pedal, that allows you to deliver maximum force to braking when you need it. And then. Your arm should be stretched out with the top of the steering wheel over your wrist. That allows you maximum control of the vehicle because, first of all, the more control you have, hopefully the less likely you are to crash. That also puts you in the best position for the airbag and the strength systems. Something that I see people commonly doing is wearing a loose seat belt. They'll take the three-point belt, fold the top, whatever, put a clip on it so, that, so the shoulder portion uh, is loose. That's bad because you want that tight against you. You should always adjust the shoulder on the B-pillar so it comes across your clavicle and shoulder so it's not riding on your neck. We clearly saw with high riding, um, those especially those early shoulder belts that came up around the window when they're up high that can actually give you blunt carotid. They can hurt your carotid artery, which is artery that goes to your brain. So you want to be positioned in the vehicle. You don't want your seat all the way to the back because then there's going to be space between you and the seat belt. So, ideally, you're going to be about arms extended length from the dashboard, which allows you, because you do want to first ride down the seatbelt. What's going to happen when you're in a crash is that seatbelt's got a pretensioner. It's going to blow, and Mercedes has active pre-assist seatbelts, and a lot of other vehicles do too. But Before
0: you go any farther, presumably, the reason that there's pretensioners is to tighten the seatbelt, which they know is going to stretch.
1: We we discovered back in 2000 there were actually pretensioners weren't required in a lot of vehicles, but they couldn't pass a test, so they put a pretensioner and then they pass a test. So to save cost, if they didn't have to put them in, they wouldn't put them in. But clearly, it's all about passing the test. And you know, in a low end vehicle, they're trying to get it out. They're trying to save everywhere they can. But safety should not be one from the societal standpoint. So yeah, you want that seatbelt tied up against you. Then you ride down the seatbelt as it stretches as your body deforms, and then you hit the airbag and further decelerate. And then you fly back and hit the seat going backwards because for every force, there's an opposite and equal uh, force. And that's why the other thing when you get in a car, and Illinois has it, my wife has a very difficult time with this, is matching the headrest to her because she's so short. The headrest is typically above her head and her head is cocked forward because of it. So when I get in the vehicle I do my seating position like we were taught in racing school for maximum control. And then I put the headrest basically up against the back of my head. So I'm sitting upright, not slouched. Because when you crash, you're going to flex at the hips. And if you're crouched, you'll submarine underneath your lap belt and underneath your shoulder belt. And this is going to lead to another discussion for another day of where to put kids in back seats. Because positioning is very important and also changes the odds of injury and fatality in rear-seated passengers. So it's... It's fascinating stuff. And, you know, I would love, you know, but unfortunately, progress in automotive safety is regulatory. And, you know, in this country, anything regulatory is just not going to happen anytime soon. But ideally, I'd like, you know, I would like to see more crash testing done with crash dummies that are truly reflective of the American population. And I actually said it in a couple of my meetings, the way a car should pass a test is, the car comes up and they go over to a rack of dummies and you get the random draw, of the dummy. It may be the Alabama hybrid three male. You know, it may be the skinny little South Florida. It may be that 50th percentile male. It may be if you, know, you don't know, but you're going to get a spectrum of a broad part of America who's riding in these vehicles. And it really make the vehicle safer for all, not just for one. So
0: yeah, a couple of the, the things that have happened over the years, you know, Volvo very famously came out with the three-point seatbelt, I think, in the Neil's you know, late, yeah, late 50s, early 60s. And then they, they waived their patent rights and they said, this is too important. We want everyone to have access to this. They did not profit from it. They said everyone can use it, which I thought was great. And the airbag, of course, when it first came out in the late 80s, uh, was very controversial. People were not sure, you know, just because the chemicals are in it. I mean, basically you're carrying a bomb in your car. People are nervous about it. Now it's well accepted and, and they're, they're very, very life-saving. They're wonderful, wonderful things. Hey, I got a question that um, I've always wondered, and you may not know the answer to this, but we all know that if you go to Japan and you drive a Japanese car, or if you go to France and you drive a French car, or if you go to Korea or if you go to the United States, based on regulations, you're going to be safe, right? Yes. Why aren't all those regulations the same? If you're a car manufacturer, you have, to, you have to change your car slightly for European versus Korea versus Japan versus United States. And ultimately, all the cars are very much the same safety. Why can't they just make it easier and make all the regulations the same?
1: Yeah, so the, the United Nations of crashworthiness. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you know, the Europeans have their own set of standards, and they do their own independent crash testing, and you know. But I, th- I think the one thing that we have seen is the international homologation, so to speak, of the automobile. I mean, you know, the French always used to, they used to have their yellow headlights. Then the English liked to have the little side lights on the on the cars, and each country kind of had its own peculiarity. But over the years, as the automobile industry has become globalized. I'm sure the industry has pushed for regulatory changes to decrease their overhead costs. I mean, we don't need to make a Camry for Europe, a Camry for Japan. We can't afford to do that. So we can make them all. And you're right. But I think, but our cars that are over there are going to have to, I'm not sure exactly how it works for an American manufacturer that would sell cars in Europe. I know that the European manufacturers sell here, they have to pass our test or they have to get an exception from NHTSA.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's right. But it, you know, ultimately, it makes sense to me to make stringent emissions rules and make stringent safety rules and make them worldwide. It would save manufacturers a lot of money, and it would also result in nice, clean cars, which they have everywhere. I mean, the the cars that you sell again in Japan or Korea are clean and they're safe. And it's to me, if if that's what you're after, it'd be nice to make it all the same. I know that there's different realities. And and there may have to be some different rules. For example, there's so many more pickup trucks in the United States. And I do understand that, but boy, it'd be nice if if we could have safe cars and cars with very low emissions and make those rules uh, as standardized as they possibly can around the world. It's, it just, it seems like it would make a lot of sense, probably too, too much sense for that to ever happen.
1: Right. But there are, there are a lot of manufactured vehicles around the world that that don't have the safety standards are not imported to america especially in emerging countries like india china there's vehicles that are made over there and even in south america that can't be imported as new vehicles sold this country because they they don't pass they don't pass anything near
0: just look at uh, mexico you know and i used to live in in south texas in san antonio and uh, you're actually allowed to drive your mexican car over the border and you know come shop and in texas you're not allowed to register it there you're not allowed to keep it there you allowed to drive so you'd see some some pretty cheap cars uh in the in the parking lot with mexican plates and they didn't have to follow our laws but they were allowed to drive on our roads which you know is, is probably fine so anyway it's an interesting world and and uh i as always Stefan, I, I love that you have so much experience and so much background it's just, this is this is Always cool to hear about what you're up to and the crash dummy thing. I love. By the way, wouldn't that be great if they if they had a lineup of dummies and then the manufacturer shows up with their, you know, their car, whatever it is, and and then the computer screen says you have to pick crash dummy number what, and it doesn't matter which one it is, your car has to pass. Wouldn't that be great?
1: I think that I would. I think that'd be great because that you know it's it's the greater good, and clearly the data shows you know the fatality and injury rate is higher for those that aren't like the the male dummy and um I think it would be great. Will, will you ever get there? There'd been talk of hopes by 2030 something may happen, but I the the important part for someone who is buying a new vehicle is to make sure that the primary driver fits the vehicle or counter the vehicle fits the driver. And yeah, that to... that gives you the greatest odds because you because the, the systems in the vehicle are giving you the best odds of functioning in your benefit
0: yeah one thing we see with uh with ranchers here in idaho is you'll see a uh you know ram 3500 or a hd chevy pickup or a f350 ford pickup and it pulls up to costco and who gets out but this you know this 5-2 woman jumps out of this huge truck talk about talk about not fitting the car so yeah all right well we're out of time and let's wrap it up um all right dude it's been another great discussion and what i would say to our listeners is leave comments give us a thumbs up subscribe uh we do read the comments and we're always trying to improve stefan and i are new at this podcast game and we want to make, make this as good as it can be so um anyway Thanks for listening, and uh, Stefan, thank you, and until next time, we will say goodbye.